question we want to explore this morning is, how should live big people interact with the world? The world of people who are not people living by the vital faith and walk in Christ that you have. Should we simply just hole up and hide away, or should we wag our heads at them disapprovingly? Should we plan life mostly for ourselves, protecting what we have, sheltering who we are, like little Jack Horners sitting in our corner. Is that what we're called to do? I want to um, point out to you that uh, Peter, the disciple, in, in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, reminds all of us of who we are, and in the description of who we are, he reminds us of what we do. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Yes, we can agree with that and we understand that, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Because once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then he tells us that we're really aliens and strangers in this world. And then he says this in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. So so he presents to us that because we are a certain kind of people, we are called to be a missional people. And I would submit to you today that live big people break into the world with kingdom benefits on the basis of who we are. In fact, uh, that buzzword missional, and I, 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 it's being thrown around by everybody. I've got, everybody's got their own definition of it, and I have my own. I, I think the definition of missional is how God tells his story through us. That, that's, the, that's the reality of being a missional people. And he, he says that we are a royal people. And it's how God is telling the royal king, the king of the universe, is telling his story through our lives that we might bring praise to him. And and so we are called a royal family. We are to do royal work. We are to do king work. Most of you probably noticed that royal photo op that took place this week between the the new princess of America, Michelle Obama, and the queen of England, Elizabeth II. I would submit to you that that's how the world sees a royal photo op. But if Peter were here this morning, he'd say, I've got to tell you that that's not exactly a royal photo op unless Michelle and Elizabeth know Christ personally, because really a a real royal photo op would be if if Judy and Sue here came up and stood in front of the church, and and I'd say, now that's a royal photo op right there, because we're a royal priesthood, we're a royal people, we are are to do king work, we are homies of heaven, we've come to bring the, the homeland to, to here, and, 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 and God leaves us here for a little while, and then he takes us back to the homeland to live with him forever. But in the meantime, we're to express what it is to, to be a follower of Christ and who he is. And as it is in heaven, so it is to be on earth. Jesus said, in, recorded in John 20, verse 21, that as the Father has sent me, So I am sending you. The inference is that we are a sent people. We are 
We are not to hold ourselves up and hide. We are, we are not to wag our heads from a distance. We are, we are not to, to shelter and preserve what we have, like little Jack Horner sitting in our corners. But, but if we are to do as Jesus has commanded, as the Father has sent him, he's saying, I'm sending you. He's sending us to be among them, to, to, to make a difference where they are. In fact, God showed up. That's what the Jesus story is. It is the divine God, the Father, God Almighty showing up to be among us. Known to, known to people because he became one of us. Came among us. I'd invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. This is Palm Sunday and so most appropriately I hope that we would address the issue of the triumphal entry of Christ. And in that coming of Christ to Jerusalem, it, it says in the text, in the quoting of the, uh, from the uh, prophet uh, Zechariah, see your king comes to you. And, and so I want to suggest to you that I believe that the, the triumphal entry where Jesus Christ presents himself to Jerusalem, he presents himself to the people. I, I want to submit to you that I think that's a pattern that can be followed in our lives of, of, of what the Lord anticipates our lives will be like. We are to be people who enter into the lives of those around us. And so the question this morning is, is are we making our life a triumphal entry into their lives? And what does that look like? How do we do that? I want to suggest that Jesus is the pattern. I want you to keep your finger also in Matthew chapter 5 today. We'll be referring back and forth to 21 to, to chapter 5. Because there I believe Jesus gave the initial teaching of what it meant to make a foray into the, the people of the world. And, and so if your Bibles are open to Matthew 21, I want to begin reading at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. Which, by the way, I want to make a point here that um, that's what disciples do. If you're a follower of Christ, you're a disciple of Christ, disciples do what Jesus asks them to do. Now, there's a lot of emotional things going on in this day of celebration of the triumphal entry of Jesus. There's palm branches being waved and the red carpet is being rolled out and there's people joyously praising God and there's a lot of emotionalism. But when it comes right down to it, those who are truly disciples of Christ define themselves by the fact that they do what Jesus tells them to do. You can hoot and hanny, hoot, hoot and, hanny and celebrate all you like but if you aren't obeying what Jesus asks you to do, it's of no value whatsoever. And so they, they obey him. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. Now, on the cloaks, by the way, not on the two animals. All right? He could do that if he wants to, but I, I, he didn't. 
A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, by the way, this is the rolling out of the red carpet of the culture. This is the, the, the best way they knew how to celebrate this grand entrance. They were, they were truly recognizing that's, that there was greatness among them. And the crowds that went on ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So they were called, literally saying, save us. And, and, and of course they were calling out, save us from Rome. Save us from our our, our imprisonment. Save us from, from uh, the slavery that we're in. And, and so I, w- I want to stop there for, for right now and pause for prayer. Father, as we embark upon this visual journey this morning from your word about this amazing entrance of Christ into Jerusalem, I, I believe that you not only want us to, to understand the nature of Christ and who he is, but because you sent him, and he has sent us. We have a royal commission to be people of triumphal entry into the lives of the people around us for your great name's sake. And I pray that we won't miss that message this morning, for I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if we are to be people who present ourselves as a triumphal entry into the lives of whoever God places in our pathway... I want you to notice, first of all, that we are to come to bless and not to beat up. And unfortunately, too many Christians have this attitude, well, i gotta just, I got to just beat up people and tell them they're wrong and all of that. And I want you to notice, first of all, that Jesus came to bless and not to beat up. In fact, in John's version of this triumphal entry, in John chapter 12, verse 15... He calls out early in the text, just before the Zechariah prophecy, and says to the people around him, Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of Jesus coming into your life. Uh, He comes to bless. He's riding on uh, the the, the colt or the foal of a donkey. Now, now you need to to understand the visual here in this ancient culture, because this is a description of a kingly entrance. But make no mistake about it, he's riding on a colt of a donkey, which was a visual that this king was riding into the city in peace. He was coming to bring blessings. If you track through the Old Testament scriptures, you'll come upon Solomon. When Solomon was the coronation of Solomon, they, they placed him on a donkey and he rode in as, a, as, as a, an evidence that he was coming in peace. And now, by the way, so, so Jesus is coming on a rescue mission. That's the message that is being demonstrated here in John 3.17. We're reminded that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's the message that's being presented by this visual. And we are to be people likewise who, who come to bless and, and, and not to beat up. He comes to bring the, the name of the Lord. It says, blessed or happy is he. Rejoicing is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus was bringing the divine name to Israel. In a most amazing fashion, that's what we're called to be. We're called to be representatives who who bring the the evidence of the homeland and, and the work that Christ has done in our lives to the people around us. We're on a rescue mission as well. Lost people are not the enemy. Can I can I say that again? Lost people are not our enemy. They are prisoners of war. What do people do with prisoners of war? They seek to rescue them. They seek to release them. They, 
this is the, the, the um, picture that Christ is presenting to us here. That, that he's come in to bless and not to beat up. And by the way, when Jesus sent his disciples to go and get these, this donkey and its colt, the, the people willingly gave it. And I want to encourage each one of you that, that um, when the Lord wants something for you, people oblige him. You don't need to wonder about uh, how things are going to work out for you. You don't need to wonder about how, how you're going to have what you need in order to, to do what you're being asked to do by the scriptures to proclaim the greatness of Jesus Christ. Just as these people gave the, the donkey and his colt when Christ wanted it, so the Lord, if you need something, then someone will provide it because the Lord will call it to be provided to you. And so we have this coming in the name of the Lord. He's bringing a piece of the homeland to the foreign land as an ambassador of heaven. That's what an embassy is all about. It's a a little piece of the homeland in a foreign land. Any of you ever had to go to an embassy? I I did one time when I was 17 traveling around Europe. I was one of those uh, first to encounter the uh, economic downturn way back 30 some odd years ago. And And uh, while I was traveling around Europe for uh, seven or eight weeks, when I got back to Belgium, I found out that the uh, airline that um, I I had come over on had gone bankrupt. And and I came back to Belgium with $30 in my pocket because I was assuming I was going to be stepping on a plane and getting home. And, And so the first thing that came to my mind is, I'm going to the embassy. I'm going to go find the Canadian embassy. So I went to Brussels and found the Canadian embassy. And by the way, it was, it was amazing. You walk in and, and you've been seven or eight weeks away from your homeland. And, and, you know, you've been around Dutch people and Belgian people and German people and Italian people and Spanish people who are all good people, by the way. But there's nothing like, at the end of all of that, finding some Canadian people. And you walked in and they said, oh, this feels so great. And, and of course... Didn't turn out all that great because they told him my plight. And, and I need to tell you that embassies don't give you money. <laughs> and $30 wasn't going to get me very far across the Atlantic and other things had to happen. But, but the embassy is, is that place where it's a little piece of sovereign territory. And, and wherever you go, you, you are bringing the homeland to the place where you are. We are aliens and strangers in this world. We are from heaven who have been brought to, to bring evidence of the homeland. And so you are to bless And not to beat up. Now, by the way, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, we are reminded that Christ is going to come again riding on a horse, a stallion, a war horse. See, this is the time of rescue. Now is the time of rescue. Today is the day of salvation. But when he comes again, when he comes a second time riding the stallion, the white stallion, he comes as a judge. He he comes in judgment. He comes no longer to rescue He comes to claim those who are his and reject all those who have rejected him. That's why it's so urgent for us, brothers and sisters, during this time and as we come upon this Holy Week to realize that now is the time of rescue. Now is the time when Christ is opening up his arms to those who will receive him by faith in the amazing work of the cross. Now is the time of rescue. Reach people. Invite people. Bring them to understanding of of, of what you have in Christ. Now it says here in verse 10. That when Jesus entered Jerusalem. The whole city was stirred. Is that what happens when you are brought among people? And they asked who is this? They, they realized there was something amazingly different about him. 
Is, is that what people are noticing in your life? Uh, now, by the way, while I have just said to you that we are come to bless and not to beat up, we need to follow through with a question like this. Are, are we supposed to just be nice people? Uh, always going along with everything that's going on around us and, and never challenging anything that we see around us. Well, I, I want you to read on here with me. It says the crowds there answered that this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And, of course, uh, Jesus was a prophet, he, but he was more than a prophet, but he wasn't less than a prophet. And when they're talking about the prophet, there's every reason that they're believing that, that he is the one that was promised, the prophet who would follow Moses, who would be like Moses, but would be greater. And so when they're talking about this, there's this evidence that they are beginning to understand who he is. And, and then it says in verse 12 that Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he says, it is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So he rides in to bless people and to welcome them with open arms and to rescue people. But make no mistake about it, Jesus came to shine the light of truth in every situation that he was uh, on. And uh, the purpose, of course, of light is to, to, to shine and to expose darkness and to call the spiritually negligent to spiritual attention. And Jesus had uncovered some really bad religion. As he rides into town and, and comes to the temple area, he finds life practices that are interfering with truth and with praise and with honesty. He, he finds there in particular that there's this very distracting work that is going on in the court of the Gentiles. You see, the Jews had set up shop in the temple area where Gentiles, international worshippers, were to be able to come and worship God. Because there is only one God. And he invites all, the whole world, to come to worship him. And even in the ancient temple, there were, there were symbols and illustrations that he is the God of the nations. And so the Jews had set up this practice of, of exchanging money, of uh, the selling of uh, or, or purchasing of sacrificial animals that they could come and sacrifice. But they were doing it in the court of the Gentiles, which was interfering with the possibilities that Gentiles could have an uninterrupted worship experience with the living God. Not only were they doing that, but of course we also know that they were robbing each other. They were extorting people. They were charging exorbitant prices to get the sacrifice. So Jesus comes in and does some furniture rearranging. He becomes quite significantly distressed that they are, they are blinding people to the truth. They are interfering with praise to God. That's what light is called to do. And, and uh, so earlier in his ministry... He had sat the disciples around him and um, he had told them that you are the light of the world. Now that was an amazing thing for them to hear. Because they were, um, the backdrop of, of that uh, particular teaching of course is several hundreds of years after the, uh, the amazing Greek scholars and philosophers of the classical Greek era had come and gone off the scene. The Socrates and the Plato and the Aristotles. And Jesus is standing in front of his disciples, a, a group of ragamuffin fishermen and other common guys. 
and, and, and who, who were men who spoke common Greek. They, they spoke the, the language of the vernacular. They, they were not trained in the classics Greek. And so they felt like anything but successful or educated. In fact, people said to Jesus and others that the people around him, they were uneducated. And, and listen to what they're saying. That's because Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And those guys that all came before you, who, who everybody clamors to, to read their teachings and think they're spectacular philosophers of enlightenment. In truth, those of you who have my life, those of you who follow me, those of you who are my disciples, you are the light of the world. You're the ones who are to bring enlightenment to every situation and scenario that you find yourself in. So Jesus is demonstrating that to them by coming into the temple and saying, I told you, we're the light of the world and I'm going to shine my light here and I'm going to express what, tr- what is true and what is false. And so he stands before them and he says, you've made the temple court a, a den of thieves. It's now nicknamed instead of a place of praise and worship of God. It's a place of, of, of thievery. And the nickname of my place of worship is supposed to be a house of prayer. And by the way, a house of prayer goes on in the particular Old Testament statement. A house of prayer for all the nations. And so we had this moment of nationalistic bigotry. Whereby they're shutting out the Gentiles from proper worship. They're extorting one another. And by the way, Jesus, it says there, throws out the victims and the dupes. Sometimes we're thinking, well, Jesus just took... took uh, uh, went after the, the victimizers. But no, he throws out the buyers and the sellers. Not only was there dishonesty going on, but they were in the way of worship. And so he shines the light. And you are the light of the world. You are called to expose the darkness. I would submit to you that there are many opportunities for you to do this. And in particular, whatever setting you find yourself in, you have opportunities to, to point out to people uh, about the truth and about light and about the fact that there is a God. When your family goes to a restaurant and you gather at that restaurant, you bow your heads and pray. It, it's that moment. It's a, it's a small thing, but it's a huge thing. Because at that moment, you are, you are calling out to everybody around you. You are calling that place a place of light. And giving the opportunity, a rare and amazing opportunity, and a most gracious opportunity by God the Father, for people at that moment to see and witness that, and see that our God reigns, that he is true, that that there are people who believe in him. Invariably, as you pause and start to bow your heads, the waitress will show up. And sometimes they start to even talk to you, and you realize they've probably never seen somebody pray. Now, you know what their reaction might be? These people are totally weird. But they also, even in that statement, are caused to ponder. Ponder the possibilities. that Maybe there is a God. Because these, these people are pretty convinced there is. And they seem to believe they're talking to somebody. What if there is somebody to talk to? It's that moment where you shine a light... And people are, people are caught by the possibilities that there is something they need to know and something they need to believe in. They're called to be people of prayer. Because, by the way, light is set up for notice, 
He lights us to show us off. One commentator said, the one who lights us will also put us on the table. Christ won't light us and then hide us. You know what I I find is a truth about that? It is impossible for a true believer to be useless. Don't you like that today? I find that a really encouraging reality. No matter what anybody says to you, no matter whether somebody said, you know what, you're useless, I I tell you that that if you have the light of Christ in your life, and, and his life is the light, then you are the light of the world. And and if you are the light of the world, he intends to put you on a table to show you off. And it is impossible for a true believer to be useless because Christ makes it so. And, And so you are to bless people and not beat people up. But you, the purpose of light is to show people that there is light, and to expose darkness, and to call the spiritually negligent to spiritual attention. But in Matthew chapter 5, when he was on the, 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 at the Sermon of the Mount, he also told his disciples that they are the salt of the earth. From his light work, Jesus moves on to salt work. I want you to notice what he does in verse 14. After he had cured the temple, healing could happen. It says here, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple. He's removed the distractions. Now people can come to God. And he healed them. So after his light work, he does salt work. These are people who are living with an obstructed view of God because of their their hurts and their, their diseases and their pain and their suffering. Sometimes you, you just get ripped off in life. These are the people who, who made their way to Jesus. And, and the question is, how can we help? I believe that the people tasked with addressing the devastation and destruction of the world is us. Because we are the salt of the earth. After tipping some bad furniture in the temple, he started to touch lives. Because you are the salt of the self-destructive earth. And the article there was a very strong, definite article. You are the salt. And there is no other. God doesn't have another plan. You're it. You're the salt of the earth. And um, this is how we are unlike the world. How we are different from the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary, says, Salt is essentially different from the medium in which it is placed. And in a sense, it exercises all its qualities by being different. We are part of the solution. We are not part of the problem. In particular, the the man as the measure of all things is wrecking things. Uh, Greed in our world has, has put everybody into a crisis. And so the tendency to decay is constant among us. But salt has a special work. Martin Lloyd-Jones also went on to say, the business of salt is to be salt. How's that for a profound statement? But, but it is profound. When Jesus said that to us, he meant it very particularly. There is no second plan for salt. He said if salt loses its saltiness, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, 15, if salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out in the dump heap. There is no other secondary major issue. It is 
it is good for, good for what it is. Salt is in the business of salt. And salt prevents decay. You um, rub salt into uh, meat and it will arrest the properties that are going to seek to cause that to decay. As we are rubbed into the self-destructive earth, the people around us, we are preventatives of the ongoing work of decay that is around us. Salt also is to provide flavor to the, to the, the setting we, are, we, are, we find ourselves in. Um, in fact, human life would be tasteless and putrid without believers. We, we are called upon to, to speak the truth and to, to uh, speak out with respect to the issues of our day. Are we called upon to protect the people of our culture from the sinfulness they would choose? Yes, we are. Even if they don't come to faith in Christ. I, I agree with, with St. Augustine's teachings in the fact that we are, we are to be, in, in the sense of salt and light, we are to be the kind of people who make it easier for the people of the world to do right things. Even if they don't choose to come to Christ because of it. So we are to, we are to, to call out to our culture to, to protect the preborn. Now, I, I'm, a, I'm a choose baby kind of guy. They can, they can choose, make, be pro-choice all they like, but I'm a pro-baby kind of guy. I've changed my lingo as well from pro-life. Pro-life is too nebulous and, and, and it gets them, lets them off the hook. I, I want to tell a pro-choice person, I don't know about you, but I'm pro-babies. Are you not pro-babies? I mean, you know what? Pro-life lets them off the hook. Let's ask them if they're pro-babies. And in fact, I, I think we're called upon to, to, to be that kind of salt and to speak into our culture and make a difference. And Because in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34, it says there that righteousness exalts a nation. And we live in this nation of Canada, and I believe that we should challenge them to be righteous. And, and in the, the goodness of God, some will repent and come to know him. Now, by the way, we also know that suspended salt doesn't do its job. Salt has to make contact, right? So, so it's no good to say I'm, I'm salt, but I, I never hang out with anybody who's not. We, we have to get in there and, and make a difference. You can't prevent dec- decay and provide flavor unless you're really making contact and touching lines. That's what Jesus did. He turned over some tables, shining the light, and then he went and touched hurting, helpless, last people, least people, lost people. And um, I've added one more because of the Canadian context. This, this, this probably teaching wouldn't, wouldn't um, succeed outside of the Canadian context, but we all know about salt in the winter. I've come up with another thing. Salt that's left sticking around something starts to be corrosive. So you know what? you got to touch things, but we can't hang around sticking around to each other. Or we'll just get corrosive and start wrecking each other. We're called upon to go out and share the light of the gospel. To share the, the, the work of the, the profound work of Jesus. To, to, to rest decay and to, to bring flavor and all of that. And, and it says then after that, that when the chief priests and the teachers, verse 15 of the law, saw the wonderful things he did... And the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David. 
they were indignant. Now, I want to I point out that, fourthly, uh, when we are um, making a triumphal entry into the lives of people, the purpose of our life is to glory, glorify God. Notice Jesus, he's doing wonderful things. Jesus was in the process of replacing the temple as the locus of God's presence. And, and he, was, it was becoming, he, was, he was now the locus of God's presence, his body. And he was going to be passing that on to his body, the church. We are the new temple. We are the locus of God's presence. We are to bring glory to God. It's not going to be by bricks and mortar, by things we build. It's by, by who we are and what we are doing in the name of Christ. And that's why in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Be salt, be light, so that they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Or as Peter said, on the day he visits us. As a Christian, Martin Jones writes, I should always have this general effect upon men before I have this specific effect. People should look at me. The context of the Sermon on the Mount was, was humility and mercy and, and kindness. And, and, and it's in this context of, of modesty and mercy whereby there's the muted luster on us and the searchlight is focused on Christ. And so that the people see it's not just any good deeds. It's how we do those good deeds. In fact, the how is almost as important as that we do them. Because it's in the how that the people around us recognize not just good deeds, but your good deeds, your kind of good deeds, done in your kind of way, which is Jesus' kind of way, so that they look at you and say, I'd like to know the God who makes people like that. That's when you bring God glory. That's how our lives are to be demonstrated. And so we bring him this glory, fourthly. And finally, it says there that they recognized all these wonderful things. It's bizarre. But this happens to you as well. It's always a shock, but you should expect your king work to face opposition. When you go into the world, and you present yourself as a triumphal entry into the lives of those who God places in your pathway, and you provide wonderful things and, and do good things, your good deeds. They're not always going to roll out the red carpet for you. They're not always going to be waving palm branches. They're not always going to be welcoming you into their life. In fact, it's bizarre, but, but regularly they oppose you. It says they were indignant. Imagine. The Pharisees, of course... We're opposing him. And, and it shocks us that it's regularly so-called religious people who, who oppose us. Or people who are offended when their darkness is exposed. That's what Jesus told us in John chapter 3 verse 19. Don't be surprised. He said, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world and men prefer darkness. That's what they're like. They hate you because you're light. And they hated Christ without reason. Because they just want benefits. They just want personal benefits. They don't want anybody to shine a searchlight of truth. See, when Jesus started rearranging the furnishings, he, he was proposing to them that they were out of line in some things. That their standard and their measurement wasn't in line with God. And, and so they, were, they objected to that because the light exposed their darkness. 
They just want benefits. But what Jesus is doing here is he is connecting benefits with the divine. And when we're trying to understand how is it we are to go into the world, how is it that we are to make a difference under this light, salt, triumphal entry kind of pattern, it's absolutely imperative that we understand that that we go in uh, to to make a difference by making sure that, that the people seeing what we are doing make some sort of connection with the God we are representing. That is crucial. It is crucial that we make those divine connections. I, I like it, you know, every, you see on, on a sports program or whatever, and, and they're interviewing a guy after a big game, and he's being a big star and everything like that, and, and, and they say, like, how did you get to where you are? And he starts to give credit to his coach, names a previous coach, or he names his dad. My dad really invested in me and, or, or whatever. And, and um, every so often one of them says, well, I have to give God all the glory, which is always great. But, but frankly, we need to bring people to the place where, they, where they're really asking us the questions. Why are you doing this? Why are you like this? What, what is the explanation for all of this? And, and then we have the opportunity of saying, not saying I'm a good person, but saying, you know what? I want, you to, I want to tell you about the author and perfecter of my faith. I want to give credit. It's like, it's like when I quoted Martin Lloyd-Jones today, I gave Martin Lloyd-Jones the credit. He's the one who wrote that quote. And what happens in our lives when we are light, when we are salt, when we are a triumphal entry blessing people, it's not because of us. It's because of the author and perfecter of our faith. It's the mentor of our lives. It's the champion of our lives. It's the coach of our lives. It's the captain of our lives. It's about Jesus. And so we need to connect people with the good works and the divine who makes those good works happen. I love it here. The kids, they're all excited. I, I want to close with just a, a minor commentary on this particular section. That You know, the kids are shouting and rejoicing and, and recognizing that Jesus is the save us one. He is the one who has come to save. They're making the connection between this, this triumphal entry of this, this king and, and salvation. And they're praising God. And, and, of course, the Pharisees and people are just brushing children aside. Get rid of them. Get rid of the children. What's with them? They don't know anything. And Jesus, what are you talking about? Have you never read the Psalms? I always went back to the, the, the scriptures, which they so prided themselves in knowing. Have you ever read the Psalms where it says right in the Psalms that, 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 that children are, uh, received a special ordination from God to praise him? This is why I believe it is so important that we prioritize a ministry to children. Because in some profound way, in some special way, they, they, they aren't inhibited. They aren't skeptical. They're willing and ready to listen to the claims of Christ. And by the way, the reason they got all excited is because the adults around them got all excited. Make no mistake about it. They learned from the adults. The adults were praising Christ. And they pick it up. If we're not enthused about him, they won't be enthused about him. If we're enthusiastic about Jesus Christ, if we celebrate him regularly, they pick it up and they're ready to believe. Never, never pass them aside and say they don't matter, they don't, they're not important. They absolutely matter. And Jesus has made it very clear that they do. And here they are, showing up the religious academia of the time. The Pharisees, you see, had 
allowed worship obstacles to obstruct the lost. They had ignored the hurting, which are the last. And they were brushing aside children, which are the least. And nothing fires Jesus up more in opposition than that. He'll close down a church really quickly if you're not interested in the lost, if you brush aside the last, and if you try to stifle the least. And so I would submit to you this morning as we consider what Christ is calling us to, that we are to be triumphal entry people, blessing, not beating up. We are shining the light on people. We are salt, bringing flavor, preventing decay. We are to bring glory to God, and we will be opposed. And then he points out with the fig tree that, you know, there's lots of, lots of false advertising out there that puts on a show but doesn't produce fruit. But live big people are different. Live big people whose light can be seen and whose salt contact preserves and flavors should expect benefit from their conversations with God in ways that defy earthbound expectations. He says, you can say to that mountain, if you're live big people who shine a light and press the salt... You can tell that mountain to go throw itself in the sea and it'll be done because you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are representatives of the living God. You are the real thing. Our Father and our God, as we... Reflect again this morning on a very familiar story to us since we were young children. We are not simply to be spectators of this activity. We concede and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, and the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem was truly an entrance of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But we also acknowledge that he has established for us a pattern. As the Father has sent him, so he is sending us. We are on royal commission. I pray, Father, that uh, this week might be spent recognizing that we have this opportunity. Until the Lord comes again, this is rescue time. This is salvation time. Today is the day of salvation. I pray, Father, that we won't pass on the opportunities you've granted to us and that we will be filled with hope knowing that you put us on the table to shine. True believers, never useless. Always useful. Good for all things. Thank you in Jesus' name. Let me just close by reminding you that we are not called to survive, but to serve. We're not called to hole up, but to light the way. We're not about building safety nets, but risking touching lives. We don't build protective barriers around ourselves. We enter into the risky fray. So are people noticing that you are in the kingly line? 
Does your life bless and benefit people? Are you missional? And let me just close with this picture that's important. Light and salt. Too often Christians choose one or the other. We want to touch lives and so we get really social and we become salt. Or we want to theologically correct everybody and we become just light. We are called to be both salt and light. In fact, it doesn't work right if you separate the two. We are called to touch people's lives with the theological truth that Christ has given to us. That's what makes a total difference. That's what makes you missional. That's what enables God to tell his story through you. God bless. Have a great week.